Hey, everybody. This is Bob Goodwin, president of Career Club, and welcome to another episode of Career Club Live, our weekly podcast where we interview industry experts. Um, If you're not familiar with Career Club, please check us out at career.club, where we're using proven sales and marketing techniques to help people find careers that matter to them. If you've been affected by a layoff, whether you're an employer or an affected employee, um, please uh, check us out. We've developed some new tools called Next Placement to help people advance in their careers and to help companies uh, help the employees that are affected by these in a more human-centric way. So again, check out Next Placement at career.club. So with that, I'd like to introduce our guest today. I'm very pleased to introduce Karen Short. Karen is a managing director at Credit Suisse, covering food, hardlines, and broadline retailers like Walmart, Target, Costco, Kroger, Home Depot, Dollar General, and a number of other major public retailers. Karen's been ranked number one or number two by institutional investor for the retail sector since 2013. And with that, Karen, welcome. Thanks for having me. Really happy to be here and happy to be here, everyone. No, it's great to have you. So we met when you were at Barclays and now you're at Credit Suisse and it's just really great to reconnect with you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. So um, as is our tradition here, Karen, we like to get to know our guests a little bit and see the uh, the real person behind the uh, the title. So just a couple quick questions. Uh, where were you born and raised? I was born in Toronto. I lived in Toronto for the, well, through high school, I'm in call, more or less college, um, moved to Vancouver and then moved to Seattle for a, a role in energy trading. So that was my earlier career was power and gas trading um, and managed to get my green card within three months. And wow. as soon as I got my green card, I applied to business school and came to Columbia Business School in New York and here we are in New York, <laughs> many uh, years later. No, that is great. Um, and so you mentioned Columbia, so that's where you went to be school. A um, little bit uh, just about your family, Karen. Um, well, my family, my, my family's still in Victoria, Canada, or, you know, West Coast of Canada. Mm-hmm. You know, as I, uh, as I mentioned, I'm obviously from Canada, um, and I became a U.S. citizen, on flag day this year and many people have asked me why it took so long and (laughs) I can get into that a little strangely, but it was basically a lawyer put the fear in me that like, if anything happened that was, you know, suspect, they could, the U S could deport me. And I suddenly realized that even though I'm married to a U.S. citizen, um, I'm basically just a temporary person here if anything <laughs> came up oh that, would, that would put me at risk. So I immediately applied for my citizenship. Uh, so I'm now a citizen and my whole family is still Canadian. Well, that's a flag day. How cool is that? That's awesome. It was a pretty moving uh, ceremony. I mean, it, it really, you know, people try so hard and so long mm. to become citizens and there was a lot of there were a lot of tears and photos and it, it was very moving. That's very cool. I, you, as as obviously an American citizen, I think that uh, it's very easy to take it for granted. And ceremonies like that and stories like yours are very cool to hear. That's like no, this not everybody gets to do this. This is something special. So on behalf of all the United States, welcome. 
<laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, you mentioned uh, energy trading uh, at the beginning of your career. Do you mind just uh, painting a little bit of a picture of your career arc? Yeah. So um, I so basically energy trading, and this is we're talking operations and operating pipelines, but also trading power and gas. So I was a little more like operations management, but also a trader of power and gas. Um, you know, I like the trading side of it and I like the kind of sales side of it because I was, I was generally more the seller of the product than the seller of the pipeline. Um, and so I, you know, obviously established a very wide network of clients, um, at that time. And Ron was certainly among them. I can tell you that, but, um, you know, it's, it's a skill set because you're doing something operational and your sales and trading that, actually ended up being very transferable to what I currently do, which is obviously being an equity research analyst at Credit Suisse. And while, you know, it may sound strange, but the skill set is, you know, financial modeling operations, but part of your role as an equity research analyst is absolutely selling ideas. Um, And so as a, as a power and gas trader, uh, in Seattle, as soon as I got my green card, I was a free agent, basically. And as soon as I got into and, and I applied to business school immediately and went to Columbia and went into a financial kind of consulting role after business school. And and it was I had a lot of I had a lot of options with respect to job offers. I had banking energy options. I had consulting energy offers. I had sales and trading offers. I had pure financial role offers. Um, The role I ultimately picked was to do financial consulting for a company that it isn't necessarily here anymore, but it's called, it was called Stern Stewart and it was very much ROIC. It's called EBA. Well, what they coined the term EBA. Mm -hmm. And what I liked about it was that I, I knew it wouldn't close doors basically because it was so financially intense and also consulting. Um, And then very quickly, I kind of got a knock on the door from many, many investment banks, um, director, the HR people that were involved directly with equity research. And I started interviewing directly with analysts in equity research, because I think it's so important to pick who you're, boss is and your mentor is going to be. And when I was interviewing in business school at the time, you couldn't interview directly with an analyst. And after the dust settled, you know, post me already starting this new role, I actually got the opportunity to interview with very specific analysts. Um, And at that time, anything technology related, like cell phone towers, et cetera, those were like the fun places to be. And I interviewed with a woman who covered food and drug retailers. And the time I I kind of, my, my thought process was a, she really cared about me because she wanted to meet me many times, you know, including meeting me for a drink just to get to know me, Mm -hmm. but B nobody, you know, you're always going to have an opinion of the grocery store that you go to or the drug store that you go to. So Consciously, I said, you know, I don't 
really care about cell phone towers, frankly, but I mean, I do have an opinion of a grocery store and, you know, I don't, I don't, didn't live in New York or had not lived in New York for a very long time or for a long time at that point. I'd only been in New York for two years, but you know, I knew what it was like to not live in New York and know which grocery stores I went out of my way to go to. Um, and so I accepted the job with her uh, and then, you know, there were various iterations of me getting promoted to become senior analyst as opposed to associate. Uh, back in 2016, she retired uh, from Barclays and Barclays hired me to replace her. And I actually even had her phone number. <laughs> so <laughs> for four or six years, I would get calls for her. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. Um, and then recently made the move to Credit Suisse. Well, you know, we'll, we'll talk more career stuff in a bit, but you've already kind of telegraphed some important things, as particularly interviewing your boss and that they care about you and your career. The other thing I'll say just really quickly that, that I empathize with is, you know, having been in kind of the consumer goods ecosystem for the last 20 years, I like it too because it's stuff that everybody can relate to. As you said, we all go to the store, we all buy stuff and it's different than, you know, something that's a little bit more esoteric, like uh, energy options or electron microscopes. So uh, I, I relate to what you're saying. What do we find you doing, Karen, when you're not at work uh, being a top rated analyst on the street? Uh, well, I mean, I definitely work out a lot. Um, I play tennis Um I do yoga. I golf occasionally, reluctantly with my, <laughs> with my husband. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I can't. I mean, I travel, try to travel to interesting places. One unfortunate coincidence with the flag day uh, swearing in was that I had to hand my green card to the. You know, you have to hand it back to get your citizenship or your naturalization certificate, yep. which means you can't travel anywhere until you get your passport. So my swearing in and, re, you know, relinquishment of my green card coincided with my three months of my garden leave. <laughs> so wow. I would have liked to have traveled a lot more in those three months, but I have it now. So now I can. There you go. Well, thank goodness. That, that, that's funny. I, I know that you're very into to, uh, health and wellness and things like that. So I'm not surprised to, to hear about some of your activities. Um, so with that, let's kind of bridge into um, today's topic, which is sort of all things retail and maybe a double click on holidays since that's recently behind us. But as you've um, you got to Credit Suisse and started initiating coverage uh, on your retailer universe, the names that you cover, um, what is your overall view of the retail landscape, particularly as we step into 2023? Yeah, so maybe just to set the stage. So I cover 22 retailers. It's about 1.6. Uh, yeah, I'll have to get you the exact number of the market cap coverage, but yeah. um, it's all essential. And I, I don't want to use that word because I don't ever want to hear it again, but it's pretty much all essential retailers. So every retailer that I cover was open during the entire pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and as Bob listed, you know, the names that highlighted some of the names, but they, you know, it does include Home Depot, Lowe's. Um, oh, you did mention Home Depot. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, I initiated coverage on December 19th and 
my view was very cautious uh, because I think 4Q is just going to be messy in general um, and guidance is going to be a little messy. So I could have sat twiddling my thumbs until March when every retailer has finished reporting, but that's not constructive for anyone. So I'm very neutral right now on a lot of names with the idea that I would like to get more constructive once we get some of these data points out of the way. The caveat would be it depends how they guide on 2023. And what I'm a little concerned about right now is that December was probably not great on sales through to actual December 25th. I think things past that once we got past the polar vortex improved decently. And then January so far is off to an okay start. So the question is whether or not my companies under coverage are emboldened to guide a little too aggressively. And I I think there's a decent probability that that's the case. Uh, So I, I am very neutral with a bias to get more constructive. Again, because I cover a list of what I would consider best in class retailers, I just think right now it's premature. So, I mean, obviously there's a lot of things that are acting on consumers these days, you know, the, the shoppers at all these retailers in your coverage. Um, what's sort of your overall take on kind of like, it's probably two questions in one, the sentiment of consumers and the capacity of consumers. Well, I really think you have to make it a bottoms up conversation because the lower end consumer, and I guess we can all debate what cutoff on household income you determine to make a consumer lower end, but there's not, there are not a lot of savings that are still there. And obviously it has been one big three year party with all the stimulus for many consumers and across all income spectrums, but most income spectrums and you know, typically a lower end consumer doesn't save. Um, And a lower end consumer doesn't actually always even have a bank account. So like all the bank commentary on savings accounts and checking accounts isn't really super relevant for for a lower end consumer. Um, But I mean, I think broadly speaking, what matters is employment levels or unemployment and, you know, going into potentially a recession when employment levels are still so high um, probably helps kind of lessen the blow if there is going to be one that is, um, you know, on top, but, but the flip side is inflation is very high, especially in food. There does appear to be a, a, a lot of noise on electronic benefits, as in foods like food stamps or SNAP, um, those are coming down meaningfully in starting. Well, they did start coming down in October 1 of 22, but there's emergency allotments and some other components of that that will start trickling off uh, imminently. So the real question is, is, does a cohort of the consumer kind of freeze? And I think it's quite possible that they do. Um, and, and so I'm cognizant of that. And that that may not affect my names as much as it would affect a pure discretionary retailer. Mm-hmm. So because you're still, you know, within the food complex, you're still buying food. You may have to trade around, so you may not buy the tier one brands. You may have to buy tier two brands. You may buy private label, but you're probably cutting back on discretionary. Yep. 
because you're not being subsidized in your life as much. So those are the things that I will will start happening, you know, before a lot of these companies start reporting. Uh, so it's definitely something that needs to be watched. But I'm a little more glass half empty than most, just in terms of how that consumer is going to hold up. Yeah. And and so, um, you, you know, and I don't know what your ability to talk about certain names is on a call like this, but, um, you know, it's not it's pretty common that people would talk about Walmart, you know, definitely skews more towards food and uh, non-discretionary and somebody like Target, you know, skews more discretionary in their merchandising mix. So you would see that as you know, underlying factors that would drive a retailer's performance? Absolutely. Well, you know, I know Target is perceived to be more discretionary, but actually the reality is when you when you consider food and beverage and house or, or essentials and beauty, they're actually 48% um, of sales. Those okay. two, whereas Walmart for let's just call it food is 50. So, I, I mean, there's actually not a lot of difference, but I, I think, you know, Walmart is certainly defensive in this environment. And, you know, they noted that they had a trade in so from higher income consumers they've seen trading into their format and they're certainly in a much better position to retain those customers because their execution is so much stronger than it was in call it 08 09 mm -hmm. from just an experience perspective you know 08 09 you went to walmart because you had no choice and i i don't i just don't think that's the consumer perception of walmart today but the reality is that they still skew to a lower income demographic and they didn't perform so well in, in the early parts of the pandemic, partly because of inventory, you know, self-inflicted inventory issues, um, big box, not being super quote unquote safe. Um, but consumers were flush with cash. So they didn't mind going to a, a higher end conventional grocer because they had excess cash. Uh, Target's a little different and, you know, they, they certainly got the trade in from the lower income demographic. Um, and they, you know, Dollar General would talk about the fact that their customer surveys showed that they, the Dollar General customer had traded up to Target. And so, you know, Target is struggling a little bit for other self-inflicted reasons today. But the real question is, did that customer just have to trade back into Dollar General and that's the reason why there's some softness and squishiness at Target, because they're kind of just viewed as Target. And the perception is that they're still Target. And that even though their price points are very close to Walmart, at least in, in essential food products, the perception is they're expensive, even if that's not the reality. Yeah. So... And you're getting all these things, but just to kind of make sure that we don't miss anything. You were talking about, you know, government checks, SNAP, um, inflation, particularly vis-a-vis -vis, uh, wage gains and how inflation is outpacing that. Um, these factors and maybe other ones, do you see them especially benefiting or specifically hurting retailers and or channels that you cover? Um, I mean, I do, because I, I think, as you point out, inflation is outpacing wage gains. So net, you're, you're constrained. I mean, and that, that's, a, that's a statement for most demographics, not just low middle income. 
I mean, it can play out both ways because you can have a scenario where you get trade into the lower price point format. So trade into Dollar General, trade into Family Dollar, trade into Grocery Outlet. You know, those things can certainly play out. But, you know, a Dollar General still has discretionary product in their store. So are you not you're not buying discretionary because you have no choice and you're you know, you're trading in for the non-discretionary. Yeah. I mean, I I mean, I think those are the main dynamics. It's a slightly different dynamic for home improvement, like Home Depot Lowe's and Floor and Decor. But I mean, I I think at the end of the day, Walmart will probably continue to benefit from trade in target. I don't know. They, they need to change their messaging. And I don't know. I don't know how you do that because it just seems from the last several quarters that, it, it would lead me to believe that they have not justifiably not been able to retain the consumer that traded into them because those customers were only at Target because they had stimulus checks. Yeah. Yeah. And then, well, you kind of alluded to, I think a lot of retailers also suffered from bloated inventory and they, they got product late that all of a sudden wasn't desired anymore. And, you know, had to take a bunch of markdowns on that stuff just to get it through the system. And, you know, again, probably something that didn't help a lot of your retailers. But one of the things I guess kind of, you know, being forward facing then is as you think about the different actions, you know, that retailers can take to position themselves to either ride out or potentially thrive uh, in the economic downturn. You had alluded to private label earlier. Um, You were talking some about pricing um, do you want to riff on that for a minute? Yeah, sure. I mean, sorry, one thing I was just going to say, uh, you know, as it relates to the supply chain, you know, the supply chain, like bottleneck kind of broke, I guess. I mean, I mean there are still supply chain issues, but you know, inventory hit. Well, let's t- take a step back. Retailers ordered for 22 thinking 22 is going to be exactly the same as 21. So they all over ordered inventory And then everything just kind of landed in April, right as gas prices started climbing and as the consumer froze. So you had all this excess inventory, consumers completely froze with the peak of gas prices and obviously inflation and food was a problem. And so it was kind of a a triple whammy. So here we are kind of working through this excess inventory Gas prices are obviously not as much of a problem, but I think they have to be watched the most because say five below, like they could see the consumer freezing and a third of their customers are household income is less than 50,000. So again, it's very much a bottoms up kind of conversation. Um, So it depends on what retailers you're talking about, but you know, Walmart is absolutely aggressively pushing not pushing, but they're not raising prices on private label, like key value items and key velocity items. So if they're doing that, there's a ripple effect to other retailers um, or conventional retailers that have to potentially follow suit. Um, I mean, I think the key thing is, is it's always what is Walmart doing? Um, And I don't think that they're trying to lower prices other than in these or keep prices low other than in these key value item categories. But I mean, you know, I think we've kind of seen the last round of price increases from the, the you know, vendors in, in terms of the 
uh, CPG. Um, mm-hmm. So that that's played out. And I, by the time you're in the second half 23, I don't think that Walmart is going to be accepting price increases. And if they're not accepting them, others are not going to be able to accept them. And it just has, like I said, a, a ripple effect. And, and it may be that Walmart decides if there is slowdown, that they do take strategic pricing actions. I, I wouldn't rule it out. We're, we're not, we're not really seeing it yet, but I mean, it may, it may come to that. So, so speaking of, you know, Walmart is the benchmark and people tend to follow suit. Um, I know that you've got a point of view on price gaps and what you're observing with price gaps. How's that changed over the past several months? Um, well, interestingly, we just published a, a report. So, so over since 2018, I've been publishing price gaps. This is a food comment. I've been publishing price gaps to in, a, in every market that I check. I publish price gaps, Walmart to Target to Amazon to Kroger to Albertsons. Um, and yeah, and to Target, but I didn't mention that. Uh, Target and Amazon and Walmart have all always been neck and neck um, during the pandemic. And that, that remained the case during during this entire last three years or two years, three years, well, three. Um, you know, the conventionals absolutely, and the gap just spiked. I mean, because conventional grocers are high-low operators and they just ripped off the low. Like there just weren't any promotions. So, and Target, Walmart are EDLP, so everyday low price. They can't, they don't change their pricing on the shelves. Um, and so you saw those gaps widen meaningfully. I'm starting to see them come in a little bit, but what's actually really interesting to me, and this is a very small sample size, but Target seems to be inching, not small sample size, it's a small number of cities. Target seems to be inching up on price. And yeah. it's something that I need to watch because if they have always been like four-ish percent, the last check they were like 13. Um so, uh, and again, this is a food comment. So uh, it, it bears watching. Um, and the conventionals are starting to kind of inch down a little bit. What do you, I was at a um, SM management meeting back in early December, I think it was. It, you know, so a lot of the big people probably be like your, your clients, actually. Everybody's super concerned about private labels. So, you know, they were... Uh, going to go to an analyst meeting for a major CPG manufacturer. And so kind of looking at from the other side of the equation with the brands, um, they were getting really nervous about private label, one from a pricing perspective, but maybe more importantly from a value perspective, because the quality is really improved with private label. And, And how do you see private label being, you know, maybe one of the assets in a arrow in the quiver of your retailers. I mean, absolutely. And I think, I think the point is, is that the retailers know what their input costs are because they're doing their own private label manufacturing. So if you have your own data, you're pushing back on vendors on what you think is acceptable from a price increase perspective. But more importantly, the supply chain bottlenecks are starting to ease a little bit. And so mm-hmm. private label a, there wasn't a role for private label in over the last three years because consumers were not price sensitive. 
but B, they couldn't execute and couldn't get the product to the shelf anyway because of the, you know, how fragmented the industry is on, you know, on product manufacturing and branded was the focus for all supply, anything supply chain related. So now you're starting to see that emerge as a stronger, a much stronger factor in, in consumers buying decisions. So, you know, Costco, I think called it out in terms of inching up. I want to say it was like hundred basis points. They didn't give a big number, but a hundred basis mm-hmm. points is a pretty big move. For a retailer. Really big. Yeah. So, I mean, again, as long as, I mean, everyone knows Kirkland is a global best in class brand. So it's a brand in its own right. But if you saw that inch up a hundred basis points in a quarter, that's a big, that's a meaningful move. Yeah. Um, Maybe more strategically, you know, I suspect a lot of your retailers are taking a bit of a wait and see, you know, perspective on, on doing uh, capital investments, whether that's store openings, remodels, maybe technology investment, you know, either what are you seeing or what would you hope that they're doing now? Yeah. So, I mean, many of my retailers are kind of in harvest mode in terms of their store base. So not necessarily growth mode, the harvest modes, like call it sweat the assets and just drive greater productivity through your four walls of your store and, you know, buy online, pick up in store and e-commerce, whatever it may be. So tech is certainly not coming down as an investment. Um, Store openings is a little squishy. I mean, I would certainly, again, there are specific companies that are growth stories. So Five Below is a growth story. Floor and Decor is a growth story. They're not going to slow down on that because the second you turn off that the spigot, you're just delaying, you know, getting back into the game in terms of getting the locations. So they're not slowing down. But I mean, I would argue that for the vast majority of my space, nobody should be opening stores. I mean, I'm not saying that for floor and decor and five below at all, but there should be, I mean, other than remodels and maintenance capex within your stores, there should be no investing in any unit growth. Um, And that's, I mean, again, food, we're overstored. So (laughs) it's definitely food retail comment. Um, You mentioned e-com and, you know, curbside and stuff like that. Do you think, because if we go back three years ago, beginning of the pandemic, that was a huge part of the conversation of click and collect and all those kinds of things. Do you think the industry's gotten to parity on at least that aspect of technology or there's still uh, leaders and laggards? It really depends on the retailer. Like any retailer that's relying on Instacart is a laggard because you're giving, or a third party, you're giving them the data. And, you know, maybe you've come to an agreement where you share the data, but you're giving some other third party data that you should be keeping in-house. So so many have not because they are relying on, you know, on third party providers, at least for some portion of it. So either way, the third party is getting the data. Um, so I do think that there need to be more technology investments, but I, I think that there's just a mindset that it's not necessary because we have, you know, well, costs, costs with these third parties has come down and, you know, the, the cost to build in terms of a distribution center has certainly gone up meaningfully. So if you talked about like early days with Instacart, 
if a retailer's decision was that they needed to have the same prices on Instacart as they did in their store, then they were paying Instacart a fee. I'm going to go with around 8%, but I mean, it's been anywhere from 8 to 15%, depending on the retailer. DoorDash has compressed that. So DoorDash, to get more share, is probably asking for like a 3 to 4% markup. So, so there's certainly a dynamic of like, do you, if you're doing a three to 4% markup and you're not building a single facility for the fulfillment, that may not be a bad decision. Um, just because capital spend on FCs, fulfillment setters is much, much, much higher than it would have been pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. But, but at the same time, you still need to own the customer. Then the more you siphon it off because you're being you know, conscious of capital, it's going to come back to bite you at certain at a certain point in time. Can we can we take a quick detour then? And because I think this relates to owning the customer data, which is uh, retail media networks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I talk to a lot of my friends who are in the CPG industry, the data and analytics industries, and you know that's like really a hot topic. And they think that that uh, what well, I guess you know Amazon's the number three after. Um, Google and Facebook now for advertising dollars. And you've got other major retailers, like some of the names we've already mentioned, you know, who are you know, really getting very serious about their retail media networks. What's sort of your take on that from a competitiveness perspective and maybe from a profitability perspective? Yeah. So, I mean, in the early stage of, of retailers trying to go after these dollars, it was very clear well, it was very consistent that the the CPG companies look at advertising in a different bucket than they look at vendor promotions. Yes. But when, you know, that was when two or three, whatever number of retail, you know, a handful or, you know, a small fraction of retailers were trying to get more of these dollars allocated to them. And my pushback on all of that was, you know, you look at a Google, you know how many eyeballs a Google has. You know how many eyeballs an Amazon has. You know how many eyeballs, you know, whoever you want to add on to the list has. I also know exactly how many eyeballs a conventional grocer has for online. It's not about the number of households that shop in their stores. It's the number of households that are shopping online. So there are many retailers that have made big promises on what they think those dollars can look like. Mm-hmm. And I've always thought it was a fallacy because it's not about how many households you have in your four walls. It's how many are using you on an app or online in general. And now fast forward, every retailer is talking about this. That's right. so as every retailer talks about getting their fair share of the ad dollars, it just gets arbitraged away as a benefit because at the end of the day, they're just going to end up with the same share of the pie that they had on call it vendor dollars or whatever else you want to, you know, you, you want to make the analogy for. Um, So I think it's all, it's a great headline, but I just think it's going to get arbitraged away and or reinvested in the actual four wall business. And you know, it may be that the vendors can do more directly with the retailers as opposed to using, you know, agencies for the spend. But yeah. 
if everyone's chasing the same thing, it's just not going to play out to be this big boon for the retail industry. In my no, 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 and it makes sense. I mean, it's like it's going to dilute by definition because everybody's trying to play in the same thing, fighting for the same dollar. Right. Um, so that was, I, I'm really glad that you had a, a strong opinion on that. <laughs> it's, it's a hot topic. Um, speaking of hot topics, um, holiday 2022. Um, yeah, I read in one of your notes that there's just a very unusual level of volatility. And we, I think we've talked about some of the factors that created that volatility. But, you know, how would you kind of categorize holiday 22, at least what your expectations are, versus prior years? Well, I mean, you know, at this point, unfortunately, we're still doing like two year, three year compounded CAGRs, you know, comparing everything relative to even including 19. I mean, I, I, I so 20 holiday 22, you still have to do that because you have so much movement year over year from, you know, pre pandemic to hopefully what is the end. Um, but no, I mean, I, I think holiday Consumers, I, I believe consumers are going to prove to be more constrained and or the, there are more investments that needed to be made to actually generate the sales. I mean, weather did not help leading up to yeah. December 25th, but most data points show that it rebounded after, you know, after December 25th and has kind of held in there in, in January so far, and weather has been more cooperative in most parts of the country. And that that's why I was saying I my, my concern is that if holiday and 4Q ended up being okay, or relatively okay, does that embolden management teams to extrapolate that for the full year 23 when they guide? And I'm, I'm like I said, I'm a little more glass half empty on the consumer. And so I that is something I'm watching out for, because I don't think you can extrapolate January to what and how the consumer is going to be feeling in June. Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously, I'm not a top down analyst, but I'm a very much bottoms up. But. And so that that comment is a broad sweeping statement. But mm-hmm. my gut is that it's you know, consumers will fizzle out. Um, so Best Buy's in your coverage. Consumer electronics are a really big gift-giving category, right? TVs, computers, phones, all that kind of stuff. And then um, clearly Walmart, Target, Costco, maybe some other names in, in your list um, also, you know, are pretty big participants in those categories. Um, do you think that, that the kind of, muted demand for consumer electronics is going to be a pretty heavy factor in how some of these retailers do for holiday? I absolutely do. Um, and I mean, I think I meant, I mean, yes, absolutely for, I mean, it, it's target. It's, you know, it is Costco to a lesser extent. I mean, we get Costco sales, so there shouldn't be any surprises there. Um, you know, it is Walmart, but also to a lesser extent, but I, I think the bigger issue going forward and, and there are data from uh, certain like specific companies have reported laptop sales i mean have fallen off yeah. the cliff. so you know that's clearly being felt already um but the bigger problem for say a best buy is there isn't any innovation and that came out of consumer electronics show in vegas 
And the lack of innovation is definitely a function of lack of funding because these, you know, innovators, I guess, or disruptors had product that was definitely viable in, this is a year ago in January, yeah, January 22. So they had something that was viable and then they couldn't get the parts. So they couldn't manufacture it. And now they run out of funding and they can't get the funding. So that's a smaller vendor comment, but even the larger vendors are not, you know, accelerating the innovation cycle yet because they're not, super confident that they can actually get the products to market. And so it's a large vendor and small vendor problem. And Best Buy is definitely reliant on the innovation cycle. And it it can't just be a new Apple phone that has, you know, a different charging device. It has to be a lot more involved than that. So we'll see, Um, you know, but, but I would say, say for Best Buy in particular, you know, other retailers that they kind of indirectly compete with, they've kind of cleared through their inventory. So 4Q could be much more promotional than it needed to be. But 23 could be, well, at least early parts of 23 could be less. Mm. Yeah, I. Um, yeah, that's a great call out on innovation. And it's actually been a, an issue for them for a long time. Um, they benefited from the pandemic. Because, particularly in computers, because a lot of demand got pulled forward, right? And you know, school at home, work from home, um, and devices, like you say, well, a new charging system, who cares? Um, right. and, and they really do need, you know, some of their key manufacturers to come up with something that people actually want to buy and will go out of their way to buy. Um, and I think that you, you marry that with what we talked about earlier with the economic environment. And it's like, yeah, I probably don't need that new phone right now. This one works pretty well as is. So um, any, any other factors acting on, on holiday that, you know, you're expecting to see as your retailers start to report? Um, well, I mean, I, I think you're probably going to see a scenario where sales maybe end up being a little better than expected, but there may be less flow through because uh, to the, you know, to earnings, just because the cost to serve keeps mm-hmm. increasing. So, you know, and that that's, you know, the big debate is like, what's a sustainable margin structure if, if you can retain the sales base that you've gained, and again, because all of my retailers are essential, you know, their overall average unit volume is significantly higher. What does that mean for your operating margin? And I have, a, you know, I'm well below on some names in terms of my operating margin, even though my sales number may not be much different than some of my competitors, but I am lower on the operating margin because I just think the cost to serve has gone up. And that's just a theme that's not going away. I mean, you're not taking wages back. You know, can you explain what you mean by cost to serve? Well, your labor costs have gone up. You know, if you rent or if you if you're leasing retailer, your leases are going up. And so even though you have a higher sales base per store, every single portion of executing within those four walls Mm. has gone up. And, you know, the complexity of buy online, pick up in store. I mean, I could probably come up with a lot of, you know, your distribution costs have gone up, although those are obviously going to come down in 23. But 
you can't just assume because you have a higher sales base that your margin structure is permanently embedded at a higher level. And that's basically what we're kind of seeing now. Um, So this has been awesome. I want to pivot because we're a career club and I want to talk a little bit about career stuff for a second. Any other kind of final thoughts as we um, tie a bow on just Karen's overall view of retail? Um, No, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I do think that, you know, the trading around and trading in and out of different retailers just has to be watched. You know, consumers are cutting back, may start to cut back. They're not yet, but consumers may start to cut back on, you know, on travel, on, well, airlines, hotels, like, do you start cutting back on eating out? I mean, we'll see how it plays out. You, you know, a five below is very adamant that they're a needs-based retailer. But, I mean, I would argue that, I mean, I love five below, but I don't know that anyone needs anything in a five below store. So during the pandemic, parents were definitely giving their kids extra dollars allocated to their kids just to make sure they were not miserable at home for two years. So I I think that dynamic needs to be watched. Um, I mean, I do think there's other certain things like, like I've had debates with investors about the sustainability of, you know, pet, like pet Mm. sales in general. And I I mean, people aren't, it's no different from your kids. You're going to feed your kids. You're going to feed your pets. Mm -hmm. I would hope. (laughs) So, um, you know, I think it's kind of a category by category statement more than anything. Yeah, just on pet real quick. Again, that's something that benefited, air quote, benefited from the pandemic, you know, that maybe has seen its spike. And I mean, look, it, it created, you know, increased demand on an ongoing basis to your point about like food and other things. But, you know, it, it I don't know that that's going to be a, a ongoing big driver, at least from a another surge. So moving on to like career stuff, I I always think this is a fun question. Um, What advice would you give to your 28 year old self with the benefit of uh, hindsight? Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, I didn't have this at all, but I mean, I think you, you know, as a 28 year old, I mean, there should be no entitlement in your attitude um, with respect to, career opportunities. And there has probably been a creep of entitlement uh, over the last three years that may dissipate a little bit, but, you know, people want to hire, people want to hire individuals who are hungry and willing to work. And it's not about being in the office. I don't, I personally don't care if my associates are in the office or not. I know if they're doing their job and I know if they're not. Um, So, I I mean, I think attitude is really important. Um, I mean, I would definitely say always make decisions that open doors and don't close them. So you kind of always have to play through if I were to take this, like, what's my next option? If this doesn't work, where do I go from here? Um, I mean, I, I would say, you know, you need to find somebody who cares about you as an individual. And so back to my post just graduation self. Um, I did have offers from people who met me for like 30 minutes and offered me 
a job. And I'm like, you don't even know me. <laughs> like, and again, this is not an entitled comment, but like, how, how do you know if you don't, if you're going to make a decision that quickly, you know, like, do you have any idea who I am? And how, so what does that mean in terms of how you're going to, to actually treat me when I'm actually working for you? Um, so those are the, I guess, the key things I would point to. Yeah. I mean, having been around, you know, the equity analyst world for a little bit, you guys work your tails off. That is, there is no entitlement in that. That is like, it, it's, it's intense work. Well, it's, it's also, you know, you need to gauge whether that who, and this is a, a unique role because it, you know, three people are tethered to me. So it's about, you know, me being respectful to them. And I don't, I don't bother my associates on a weekend. Like there may be a weekend here and there where there's something that just has to get done. But for the most part, you know, I, it's Monday to Friday and, you know, everyone puts their heads down and works hard and we all communicate and, you know, no one works in a bubble. And so it's about communication and it's about respect. Well, one of the things that you said too, that I think is really important and, and I'm finding this at career club too, with my own associates is um, my teammates here is that it's not about the hours. It's not about the location. It's about, you know, for me, two things you, you, and you mentioned both of them attitude you know, I want people who really are interested in what we're doing here, right? And care about what we do. You, you're interested in retailers. That's something that you're genuinely interested in. And then it's about performance. Um, you know, right. if, if you got your work done at two in the morning, because that fits your lifestyle and that's what you like, then cool. I just, you know, it's, it's about accountability to getting the work done. When and where it gets done, I am way less married to. Um, I care about that you care about what we do and that the work gets done on time and with excellence. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, I know some of my peers need to have their associates like right in front of their offices because they need to track what they're doing. Like, I don't want to track what they're doing. I know if they're doing their job. And I know if they're performing at a high level, and as you said, I mean, there are times when 2 a.m. isn't going to work because I have to edit something, but uh, I don't care. <laughs> I just, I don't care. You either get it done or you don't. And um, any other, because I love your comments, any other career advice uh, that, yeah, that you would offer to somebody who might be listening to this that's been important for you? Well, I mean, I think I think that it's very important to be proactive and offer solutions um, mm. and always be prepared. So I I I have one of my more junior associates. I mean, he's unbelievably prepared. He always, you know, he always offers solutions and they may or may not be the right one, but but at least he's creatively thinking. Um and, you know, most, like 90% of the time, it's a great idea. And we take his advice, but he's just thinking outside the box. Um, you know, but I think you have to be engaged. So you always have to be trying to figure out how you can insert yourself into a process and learn and not be, again, not be intrusive, but always manage the two, you know, be learning and making sure you're part of the team and letting 
people do or just doing your job, but also being a part of the team. Yeah. I just, I love what you were talking about with the uh, being proactive and offering solutions. I remember telling uh, a guy that was on my team a hundred years ago who would just complain about what was wrong. And my problem identification is not a compensatable skill. Bring me an idea on how to solve that. And you have my full attention. And, you know, it's because um, it can be easy to complain. But, but when you see a young person or younger in their career, I should say, you know, who really is trying and they're, as you say, being proactive and, hey, I was thinking about this and this may be a great idea. It may not be a great idea, but I wanted to bring it to you and, and get your thoughts. Oh, my gosh. I have unlimited appetite for that. Yeah. The, the other thing I would say is that, I mean, I do think in early stages of career, like you really need to make sure you're tethering yourself to the right, well, boss, but mentor, because your perception as a more junior person is always going to be associated with the person you work for. And so that's why it's so important to do your due diligence and and make sure that you're signing on to something that you want to be a part of as opposed to taking something just because it's X number of dollars versus the other offer that was 10% below that, because you need to think about what it means for your longevity as from, you know, and, and from a respect internally, because Mm -hmm. most of the time who you work for is going to determine what your pay is. (laughs) Good point. So I I read a stat and it's, it's, I think it's, pretty well known, but just saying that people don't quit companies, they quit bosses. And so, you know, what you're saying, which I think is just really spot on advice is you're also interviewing the boss. And is this somebody that you you want to get invested in who will invest in you? And, um, and, and then what you're saying about you're tethered to other people and being part of a team and a group and just all really good advice. Karen, this has been awesome. Um, I knew you were amazing as a as an analyst, but as we've kind of gone through some of these different topics, uh, even more respect for for everything that you know about the industry. I know the people who listen to this are going to benefit greatly, and uh, I really enjoyed this last little bit on career. Uh, you had some very insightful perspectives that, like I said, I know that our audience is really going to to appreciate. So, thank you so much. No, thanks very much for having me and. I look forward to seeing it go live. Yeah, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be up soon enough. And uh, again, congratulations on uh, your new role at Credit Suisse. They're very, very fortunate to have you. Thank you. Awesome. Good to okay. see you. Okay. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, we look forward to our next episode of Career Club Live. And we've got Jared Schreiber, who uh, is one of the founders of Numerator and has recently written a book called Breakout Brands that I know people are going to enjoy quite a bit. So with that... Thank you very much, and we'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye. Thanks, Ben.